Welcome to the Intern Whisperer Live, the show all about the future of work. This week, we explore the future of the communication industry. When did journalism first launch as a published newspaper? What about the launch of social media? When was the first social channel? What does the future of the communication industry look like five to 10 years from now? Well, we have a great show lined up for you that takes a look at how we consume news, real or fake starting with journalism, broadcasting, and social channels. So at the end of this show, I'm going to be sharing the Interim Whispers Tip of the Week. So stay tuned to learn more on how to create a successful internship program that hits all the right boxes using Interim Pursuits Platform and Learning Academy. So Caesar, let's jump into a little brief history of journalism. So we started the history of newspaper in America, began in 1619, at roughly at the same time as, as it began in England. Now let's jump to now, 2021. And we did a little interview with Professor Richard Brunson, one of my favorite UCF um, professors I ever had. He's, he's really awesome, but don't take my word for it. Here is his prediction on the future of journalism. So I'd like to welcome you, Rick. So nice to meet you. I know we had an offline conversation, but this has been just phenomenal. And you come very highly revered from the students that you impact that you have meaning in their lives and they come away so much better. So just making sure that you know that you're loved at UCF. I'm delighted to be with you, Isabella. Thank you so much uh, for that and for having me on today. Well, I appreciate it. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background, where you went to school, why you ended up in the communications field and why in education? Because for me, that's fascinating. I know our listeners will like that also. Yeah, absolutely. So I have been at UCF as an instructor of journalism uh, for the last 18 years. I've been a professional working journalist for the past 36. Now, the coolest part for me, and it's why I pinch myself a lot, almost every time I drive on campus, is that I'm teaching journalism where I learned it. I studied journalism at the University of Central Florida, graduated with a degree in sociology and journalism in uh, 1984, and then became my first job was was as an obituary writer. <laughs> uh, yeah, at the Sanford Herald, which is still in publication up in uh, Sanford, Florida. That was my first job. And then uh, stayed at the paper there for about a year and a half and moved on to other things like writing about public safety and being a city hall reporter. And then basically for the next uh, 20 years, I worked in newspapers along uh, the I-4 corridor, the Daytona Beach News Journal. Mm -hmm. I was uh, at the Tampa Tribune for 10 years and then came back home to my hometown paper, the Orlando Sentinel, and, and had a great career there as a copy editor, desk editor, columnist for a while, a history columnist, and then started teaching as an adjunct at UCF. Got a call from a former professor one night when I was still at the Sentinel, and he said, Rick, we hear you have a master's degree, and uh, we need somebody to teach news reporting. Would, would you be interested? And I came out and did it and fell in love with it. And my mother was a longtime uh, and is a retired elementary school teacher, so education has been in my own background and DNA since you know, I was a little kid. So I adjuncted a class and they kept inviting me back. And then uh, when they had uh, someone on the faculty who retired, they invited me to apply for the job if I was interested. And I did. And I got the job and I've been teaching ever since and love it. It's like I said, I pinch myself that I get to teach journalism where I learn to be a journalist and get to help prepare the next generation of young people 
who love this and want to do it for the right reasons and to have a hand in their in shaping their career and, and their education. And it is just a thrilling opportunity that I never take for granted for a single day. That is a wonderful legacy that you're leaving, but also a tribute to UCF and to, you know, the people that had the wisdom to hire you. <laughs> well, what is your area of specialty? You said journalism, but is that still what you really like focus on? Is it is. I'm, I'm journalism. Or? It is. I'm, I'm senior instructor of journalism, but the program has evolved even in the time that I've been there, just as journalism has dynamically evolved in the last 20 years. You know, when I went there, we were still very print focused in the yeah. in the journalism program. But as, as we all know, most people get their news, their first sight of a headline or something going on is usually going to be on social media. I mean, they're going to see a tweet, they're going to see it on Twitter, and they'll dive into it. And then they may flip on their TV to get, you know, more information or uh, go to a news website. So how we consume news, and thus how we produce news, has radically changed even in the 18 years that I've been teaching it. And our program has evolved uh, over the years to keep up with those changes. So I agree. Yeah. Most people consume it through either their phone or their computers. I don't even know how many people have TVs, but I guess if they have them, it's the giant ones that are like the movie theater ones, honestly. Anyway, I think that that's very true that we've seen. I was very sad to see Orlando Sentinel has like, it seems like it's shuttered its doors and the day when people would hold old newspapers. I think that there's an experience there that's part of that tactile experience that's very valuable, not just reading it off of a computer. It also seems very relaxing. And I feel like there's going to be a movement for that to come back into trend at some point in time. Oh, I agree. I agree. Much like like vinyl albums have, uh, you know, there's a there's yeah. a niche market for vinyl albums. It's funny that we're talking about this. I just posted to my own Facebook page about an hour ago about a young woman that I met this week who is about to graduate from an another university. And uh, I had her visit virtually into my principles of journalism class because she's doing such amazing work as a 21 year old out in Texas. And we were talking before she came into the class and she was talking about how she still reads a print newspaper. She's 21. And, yeah. and she said she likes it because of the experience of holding it in her hand. And she says, I take more time when I'm reading a print newspaper to absorb and understand what I'm reading rather than just scrolling through the face of my phone or scrolling through Twitter, which gives me the headlines and, you know, it gives me the news fast. But if I really want to understand what's happening, I get it most when I just sit down with the paper and read it, you know, front to end. And that was amazing for me to hear a you know young person say that. So that kind of gives me some idea and inkling hope. that, yeah, and some hope that there will always be some kind of a niche for print yeah. and, and people who want to read deeply and truly understand what's going on in the world rather than just get headlines. I agree with you. I agree with you so much on that one. And again, I'm encouraged to hear that a 21 year old is is finding that to be true. Before COVID, you know, there was a different way of how news was transmitted and even some of the messaging that was going out there. There's so much that it's constantly, you know, whether it's on broadcast or if it's in print or in social feeds, it's always streaming that whatever is the latest, whether it's shots or, you know, vaccines or presidential candidates, and it's all heavily focused on COVID. How do you feel about having more diversity in the news? Because I don't always want to see celebrities and I don't always want to hear about COVID. Isn't there 
something that would be of good news out there or things that are trends that people are really gravitating to? Yeah. So when you talk about diversity in news, you're talking about diversity in coverage of of, of topics. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a few friends post that they don't want to see any more videos of syringes going into arms. It's (laughs) they're they're getting a little, little sick of it. Yeah. So COVID is a big story because it's impacted all of our lives in so many ways. I mean, from the, from people who have lost loved ones to, to those of us who just our lives have been disrupted, our workplaces have been disrupted, you know, people have lost jobs, there's been a huge economic impact, it's changed the way we learn, it's changed so much. So it's a story that's going to be with us for a while. On the other hand, I do think you need to remember that you can't just pound people all the time with the same thing. And people do want hope and they want a sense of, we crave it as human beings. And and so I, I think that's always why you all at the end of a newscast, if you're watching TV news, they always try to end with some kind of positive, hopeful story so that they lead, they leave you going off the newscast with some sign of some hope. And I think that's a good thing. And we need more of those kinds of stories. And they're out there. It's interesting that there are sites like Upworthy and others that try to give you good news. That said, I think why journalism exists, it's one of the the few institutions or professions that's specifically mentioned in our constitution here in America, right there in the First Amendment, a free press is there for a reason. And the primary reason it's there is because journalists and journalism, when it does its job, holds public officials accountable for what they do with the power we give them and the tax money we give them. If journalism continues to always keep its eye on that ball and does what it was created to do, which is to provide accountability, inform the public of what their leaders are doing, providing a measure of accountability there, there'll always be a place for journalism and people, the public, most of them will appreciate and respect that and keep coming back to it. I agree. You talked about accountability. I think that's the key word that needs to be used constantly in this 2021 year that we're in, honestly. The reason being is I think that real news and then there's fake news out there. And it's really hard to tell the difference. I know this isn't necessarily the direction that we originally talked about, but people being able to recognize what is fake news. Do you guys cover that in the classroom? Is that how you're preparing students for, you know, these future jobs? Because I don't know if accountability is, can it be taught? I mean, where does that come into play in the job market? The biggest thing you should get out of your university education is the ability to think critically. Yes. And that's what we're we're talking about on this topic of what is fake and what is real, what is authentic and what is bogus, is the ability to tell between the two. And that is a key life skill. And it's one that we teach in our foundational SPC 1608 Fundamentals of Communication class. We teach every student how to be media literate. How do you look at a piece of information and determine whether it is true or whether it is false? We teach something called the crap test, where you can look at authenticity, relevancy, currency. There are certain key features you can look at any piece of information to determine whether it is authentic or not, or whether it's bogus or not. That's part of being an educated person, as part of being an educated citizen. And it's more important than ever because there are websites, there are organizations that are out there that are malevolent, that have an agenda 
that want to specifically to either give them money or to persuade them to think a certain way or vote a certain way. And as citizens, we need to be armed with critical thinking skills so that we can determine what is true, what is accurate, and what is not. The thing with human nature is we always, all of us, we are constantly looking for information that affirms what we already believe to be true. We got to get past that and not look for affirmation, but look for information. Mm-hmm. Even if it challenges our most cherished beliefs or opinions, that's how you grow as a person. That's yes. how you grow as an educated person and as a citizen. So journalism has a role in that. Education has a role in that. And that's what we uh, strive to do out at UCF and the Nicholson School of Communication and Media. Yeah, I appreciate that. So what do you think the jobs of the future are going to look like in journalism? How do you see it morphing or expanding? Uh, Obviously, we know that people can work remotely. So Mm -hmm. that's a given, right? And technology is changes in the blink of an eye, can dictate things. We could do it back then, of course, you know, when people were first starting, they would take notes, of course, and then dictate. But there's so much around us where we are actually filming, you know, on our social channels, we stream live. So is that how you see it going and where it's going to be more live? People are in the moment, but yet they're journalists and they're capturing something and they're putting it out on the airwaves. What do you think it's going to look like? Yeah, so I'm teaching skills that I would have never imagined myself teaching 18 years ago when I started at UCF. I'll give you an example. Just this week that we're wrapping up here, it's a Friday when we're talking, and I taught a lesson in a course that I would have never imagined 18 years ago, my mobile journalism course, okay? Mobile journalism. So, you know, you have a newsroom in your hand now with these Mm -hmm. wonderful devices. This is your front page now, right? I mean, so I teach an entire course where I, I train my students to gather and report all the information that they're going to put together strictly with their phone. So the, a lesson I taught this week is using audiograms. Audiograms are little short mini stories that you tell with a still photograph, an audio clip, transcribed text, and you put it all together in a little story for social media. That's where it goes. It goes on Instagram or it goes on Facebook, or it goes on Twitter, and you report from the scene wherever you're at, and you do it right in the moment, and you put it up on an audiogram. Now, that's not the entire story. That's just a piece of the story. A teaser, right? It's a teaser. It's what I call chips and salsa. It's an appetizer to your larger story. That's the thing that has changed now with journalism is, you know, when I came into the business, you wrote a story, you worked on it most of the day, you turned it into your editor, you know, late in the afternoon, they edited it. It went in the next day's newspaper and you're done. These days, a story is a living thing. You know, it's real time. It breaks. It's real time. And people don't want to wait till the following day, six o'clock news, or they don't want to wait. Uh, they want to know what's going on right now. So we have to use these devices effectively to deliver that kind of, of accurate reporting in the moment in real time with the understanding that when you do that, the story is likely to change. I mean, mm-hmm. what we know at 8 a.m., may change by 10 a.m. as more facts come in. So, you know, we have to do that ethically with transparency and let people know this is what we know right now. This is what we can confirm right now with the understanding that that may change as the story develops. 
Mm -hmm. Do you guys still use the who, what, why, where, when, how method too? It's the bottom line of the, the basic, you know, bread and butter of journalism, the five W's and the how. You know, those are the basic building blocks of the story. And if you don't have those key pieces of information, uh, you have holes in your story and people feel less informed. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that that's going to be, and I think that's really vital because people always want to know those answers to those key questions. And when they're put out there, you know, there's only, there's no question. And I think you hit and the nail on the head by saying, well, this is what it is right now. So uh, do you have any final thoughts about what you think the future five, 10 years now will look like? Uh, obviously we can do, like you were saying, video. We can also do pictures. We can do everything here. It's having your own video photography team with you constantly, audio team, whatever you need. But do you see things such as embedded into our bodies where we're actually going to be doing anything? That's where a lot of people seem to think that, oh, it's going to be the matrix. Something's going to be embedded into us or in our eyes where we're recording right through, you know, contacts, if you will. I don't see things being injected. Google tried Google Glasses here a few years back and that really did take off. So I think you're going to constantly see technological experimentation with new means of delivering the news and new ways of consuming it. But I think the fundamentals of journalism never going to change because it's at the end of the day, it's what people want and what they need to know and what they value. They mm -hmm. want to know what's going on in their communities. They want to know what's going on in their school system. They want to know what's going on at City Hall. They want to know about when is this road going to be fixed. Things that affect their daily lives, they want to know about. And so community journalism, reporters putting on, lacing up their shoes and hitting the street and knocking on doors and asking questions and being the representatives of the public because they have access, you know, to the mayor, they get to ask the questions of the mayor. You know, you can't be there. I can't be there. But a journalist is there to ask the questions that we would want to ask the mayor if we could be there. So I think if journalism continues to focus on, ultimately, we are public servants. We are here to inform our communities. We're here to ask tough questions of officials who sometimes don't appreciate being asked tough questions and stand there and be courageous and ask them anyway, because you're asking on behalf of the public. Journalism will continue to be valued. What I'm concerned about, Isabella, is the business model of journalism, because once everything went digital in around 1995, there was suddenly the expectation that news should be free, that because anything on the internet should be free. A reporter or a journalist or an editor or a photographer, they need to be paid to produce the kind right. of professional quality work that we expect of them. So there has to be a funding mechanism to pay journalists to do the work that they do. If you just, as a consumer of news, you just expect that everything should be free and news should be free, that's going to diminish the value of the kind of news that you get. You get what you pay for in this you know, life. You raise such a really valuable point right there because we pay for our channels, right? No matter what the content is on any type of a platform that's out there. I know that there's been a lot of press about how, I think it was Australia, where um, Facebook, they were streaming and there was, maybe it was the Australian government or the people there that shut it down because they said, well, you're going to have to pay for it. And people are not wanting to. I agree. I think that if, if that's going to be a true career path, not even career path, 
to be able to make sure that you're hiring people that are not going to be sending us propaganda or you know things that are not true, the fake news, then we have to make sure that we're willing to pay for the truth. And that doesn't mean that there's not a cost. There has to be a cost. There's always been a cost attached to it. And the idea that, that there would not be a cost attached to it is just ludicrous because you pay for anything of value. And so on the production side, news organizations and news companies need to make sure that they're constantly putting out a product that does have value. We need to make sure that our product has value, that people do value it. And and then on the consumer side, if you do value it, you need to be willing to to shell out some money and pay for it. Or that journalist may not be there tomorrow to ask Mm -hmm. the questions that you need him or her to ask the mayor. So, you know, and the other thing, you know, we're talking about fake news. I I really see the day thinking of the future where news, there's going to, there's so much fake information out there. It could be a full-time job just debunking the junk news that's out there that people are intentionally putting out there because they have a political agenda or they're just- Want to just be disruptive. Or just to be disruptive. There are organizations out there that just so- chaos. And that's their whole purpose. You know, we're in a democratic republic. We want this thing to go on for another 230 odd years. We have to have an informed citizenry and, and journalism is a key part of that. And so one day newsrooms could come to the point where they develop strike teams. Whole job is, you know, you have a debunking desk where you have four or five web editors and their job is just to keep an eye on the internet and knock down bogus information and lies that are going out there Mm -hmm. that people believe. Mark Twain famously said, a lie travels halfway around the world before the truth can even get up and get its shoes on. Well, that is a really great note to, to leave on. Just a constant a reminder to everybody that listens to our show and just share the news, uh, no pun intended there, but make sure that you're focused on authenticity, on being you know, transparent and recognizing there is a difference. We each have a responsibility for that. I want to thank you for being on our podcast so much. I look forward to following you on social feeds. And if there's a way that I can come and sit in on one of your classes, I'm putting a request to do that too. You have an open door invitation. We'll roll red carpet out for you, Isabel. Thank you so much. Uh, Come anytime. I'd I'd love to have you sit in with us. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. You are so welcome. I really enjoyed meeting Professor Brunson. He was amazing. I'm so glad that you recommended him. And he was very popular with all of the interns here at Intern Pursuit that are in that department. So good job, Caesar. Thank you. And I know the one thing that he mentioned that really stuck out to me was about how he thinks that news corporations are going to have like debunk teams in order to like, combat real news and fake news. So I think that's something like we need, especially like now, given what's happening and what's happened the past year. That's very true. And they actually have watched on the news several times where YouTube does that. So does Facebook. They have nothing but people that scour the internet on those specific channels. They're hired just for that take down things that are not real, that are going against the the mission and the purpose of what these social channels are for that are there to distribute news. Let's take a brief moment to look at the history of the broadcasting industry in the United States. Let's hear what the average person on the street has to share about what they think the job and the industry will look like five years from now. I think that there will be more social media related job opportunities available. I can also see 
social media companies hiring a team of people to help dispute the onslaught of misinformation being passed around through various social media platforms. And as well on the other end, I think that companies will be hiring teams to lead their social media presence. What I've seen is right now, TikTok is leading the transition to a short video format and other platforms are following, adding similar features with that to compete with that. I think that more companies will be taking advantage of that to either adding it for their own communications or like on Instagram, people will share resources of information and like also use it as means for sales and traffic to their websites. If you were to ask me what job opportunities do I think will be available in five years in the communications industry, I would probably emphasize that we're going to need more and more editors or content curators. The amount of information online, the amount of information we create every day, every hour, every minute is overwhelming for people. So someone who has a sharp eye for what's relevant, how to put things together that are of interest to people, and, and work for them are gonna be very important. If you were going to ask me a broader question about the future of the communications industry in general in five years, I would probably emphasize that we're moving more and more towards the idea of communications as entertainment. And so I think there's going to be all sorts of opportunities for people, whether they're storytellers, bloggers, vloggers, or whatever, to contribute to that and it will be, it'll be even more so in the next five years. Also on the technology side, there's going to be more opportunities for programmers and coders and technology people because of this overwhelming amount of information. So things like developing artificial intelligence that ranks stories correctly or creates relevance for the audience and knows their likes and dislikes and can cater to that gonna be important. As well as the idea of things like technology that helps to cr not create, but to document news. As an example, in Southern California, where earthquakes are fairly prominent and there are seismometers all over the, the area, if an earthquake happens in Southern California today, there is a bot that automatically writes a story that would be worthy of going out on the, the AP wire. In other words, it will actually create a narrative story about it at one, this time at 6.15 in the morning, there was a 5.3 level earthquake, it was on the San Andreas Fault, etc. So that's all done automagically, if you will, but there are programmers and technologists behind it. Opportunities like we've seen them before, I don't think we'll ever see it again. The next five years, it's going to be more people on their own, creating their own companies and doing their own communications and freelancers, as well as the avenue of just having blogs and podcasts and YouTube and all these different streaming services. People can just do their own thing and just Twitter, you know, they can just say what they want to say. All these PR people that celebrities used to have, all these big tell them what to say, read this. That's becoming a thing of the past just because people just go on there and do it themselves. And with the pandemic, what it's shown us is that you don't need to be in a specific place to do it. People can do it straight from their homes. So it'd be easier just to contract a freelancer if that and do one particular job and then just keep moving until you need somebody else and probably not pay somebody as much as what you pay somebody to keep them full time. In terms of the future, it's probably going to be just that. 
in the next five years. You know, the injury series as a whole is showing that it can be done from, straight from the house. You don't need somebody on site. You don't need somebody coming into your office four or five days a week, working X amount of hours, paying them X amount of time for what they do when you could probably just hire somebody for the job. So communications at itself, I think it's going to be a dying breed. It's going to dwindle. We have so many ways to be able to communicate ourselves. Like even these people that communicate, let's say for advertising, like a TV show or people that sports cast themselves. Nowadays, people mute that and they listen to other people. They'd rather just listen to a regular person from YouTube give their own opinion. So why do you keep somebody on staff if people just don't, don't want to hear it anyway? So the job itself as a communications, the industry as a whole is not something that's going to be sustainable going forward in terms of how we know it to be now. What job opportunities do I think will be available in five years in communications? In five years? God, I'm not going to be able to predict what jobs exactly, but I can say like, oh, there will be different coding jobs where people will be making new social media style apps. And to look back five years ago, 2016, I believe that's when Periscope started. And of course, recently they announced that the app will be uh, discontinued. But yeah, that was a, a big thing, live streaming. Uh, and five years later today, YouTube allows you to monetize your live streams. So not only are you getting paid for how many viewers you're getting and the advertisements in your live streams during the playback, but you're also receiving payments from your viewers if they choose to donate to you. So that's a different style of a job that I suppose happens. So yeah, I can see something along the lines of different style ways to monetize our social media accounts, whether it's videos or photos. Maybe there will be a disruption. Maybe there will be a whole new device that will allow us to create a sort of different social media style like today we have tiktok which wasn't really a thing so much when instagram and facebook were coming up because it's just lip syncing i mean we used to have vine and it's kind of the same thing but it's not but people still enjoy the entertainment out of it so i can see that being a possibility of another way of a job i know i'm going strictly on social media here communications is kind of broad with any sort of style media and i can see different experience i mean this past 2020 we can definitely tell there's been some changes within like movie theaters and how we stream our entertainment so streaming services will probably be a big shift in what theaters used to have maybe i don't can't really predict what exactly will change the industry i can just think of one word innovation and i know that scares some people i know that innovation's a thing that put both political parties kind of fear and maybe also understand like that's to come <laughs> there's no stopping it i don't personally i don't believe we should fear innovation i understand like the risk of jobs that could be lost and how that can effectively change so much in other jobs but i try to be optimistic in this one because i don't think we should halt progress i don't think we should halt where technology is heading towards it also could allow for new jobs when automation occurs so communication alone god that's again like with the media or social media just communication like how we talk to each other how we 
entertain each other? How do we even get, pay each other? You know, of course, with these contactless payments through our phones, that's a big shift that pretty much occurred in the past five years. I could see maybe rather than just using your phone, you just need your fingerprint. So God, that'll be a big change for a lot of industries to have to like change their own systems and how they even accept payments. So, but I think again with this past year the industry has taken a bit of a beating but at the same time it benefited communications within how like we perform our jobs like of course we live streamed a lot from home or at least many uh people around the globe have and we learned that we can streamline certain things in these jobs so of course that can maybe cost less and it's probably not so necessary for everyone to be on site at their job locations so that would definitely be a big shift if we continue moving forward from that experience so i really enjoyed that insight that these people shared i found that very very interesting and it really is aligning with several things that professor brunson had said also So one of the first signals of a significant power that carried voice and music was accomplished in 1906, and it was by Reginald Fessendine. What a name, Reginald Fessendine. When he made a Christmas Eve broadcast to ships at sea from Massachusetts, he played Oh Holy Night on his violin and read passages from the Bible. That was really awesome. He was there to give them encouragement at a time when Christmas Eve, we're supposed to be with family. You know, it can be really, really hard to not be with family and to be out in the middle of a ship in the middle of nowhere. And just think, 1906, you know, somebody was thinking about how they could bring emotion, bring family, bring things that really matter to somebody else across, you know, the sea. I think that Reginald Fessendine was a visionary and truly somebody that was caring of the fellow people that were not with their families. His financial backers lost interest in the project and they left to take other steps. So, you know, we're back to this concept of broadcast being new. It's unusual. There's telegraphs, we have radio, but gosh, we just don't have any way of being able to broadcast a message through things that like where you take for granted, like television. This is very true. So now we jump a little forward to 1909, where we had Charles Harold of California, who sent out broadcasts as early as April of 1909 from his Harold's School Electronics Institution in downtown San Jose. He used the identification of San Jose Calling and then a very different call signs as the Department of Commerce first began regulating radio. So he was a son of a farmer who patented a seed spreader. Harold coined the term broadcast and narrow casting based on the idea of spreading crops far and wide rather than only in rows. While Harold never claimed the invention of radio itself, he did claim the invention of broadcasting to a wide audience through the use of antennas designed to radiate signals in all directions. That's pretty interesting stuff, Isabella. Agreed. So then we move over to 1912 and the U.S. government began requiring radio operators to obtain licenses to send out signals. So again, before television, you know, most of our communication was going through the airways through radio And this is where people are beginning to get an understanding of what syndication can be like, how they can communicate. Interestingly enough, the Westinghouse Electric Corporation was the most well-known of these because they just kept working on getting the radio out there so that more people could know what was going on. Frank Conrad was a Westinghouse engineer, and he had been making transmissions of what was called 8XK since 1916, 
and that included music programming. So music was going on the airways and people were able to get news as well as music that was lifting their spirits. Just think about it, early 1900s, not a lot of ways people were getting news other than newspapers. So this is a really big deal. Really, really, really is. And imagine just you hear everything back then was all like face to face, but now well, I can hear someone talking on this device. So that's pretty cool, interesting stuff. You know, Caesar, what is really amazing that I don't think that people understand how much time things have happened because we went from newspapers, print, and even before then it was like just telegraph messages and then newspapers. And then we go into radio. And now, uh, you know, we're going to be coming up here pretty soon to when we have television. And we're thinking about all of these ways that we consume information. And in today's society, here we are, we've got social channels, Everything that we do is on this little tiny phone. And this phone is like, it's not just considered a phone, it's actually considered a computer because it's a smartphone, but it's really a computer. We can stream movies, we can stream you know, news, we can stream so much, we can have phone calls, we can do video calls, we can do so much here as to where we were way back here in 1926, when we began broadcasting with NBC, ABC, and CBS between 1926 to 1943, when those radios, those TV stations came into existence. That began the time when families were sitting around the living room and watching shows, listening to the news, and really beginning to understand how they could take information. Interesting, so interesting. Let's take a quick spotlight transition moment to hear this message from our sponsor. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. So we're going to now move into the launch of social sites. In the 1980s and 90s, according to the history of social networking, the digital trends, the internet's growth were becoming very, very popular. There was the introduction of online communication services such as CompuServe, America Online, and Prodigy, and they all introduced users to digital communication through email, what was called a bulletin board messaging, and real-time online chatting, which is a really big deal because, you know, you're able to have a lot of information going back and forth. Cell phones were not like what we have now, so we're moving into a whole different way of communicating with one another. So now, this gave rise to the earliest social media networks, beginning with the short-lived six-degree profile uploading service in 1997. Now we go to 2001, where Friendstar, which was a rudimental platform, attracted millions of users and enabled email addresses, registration, and basic online networking. So web blogs or blogs were just coming into you know, an early way of being able to communicate as another way of getting messages out, and they began popularity in 1999 with the launch of the live journal publishing site. This coincided with the launch of the blogger publishing platform by the tech company Pyra Labs, which was purchased by Google in 2003. What I find interesting about that is 
I did not know when actually Google, and I know we've talked about this in another show that we had, but when Google was launched was 2003. And I'm still bringing that up because I sit here and I think, my goodness, it seems like Google's been around for, gosh, you know, a really long time, but here we are. 1921, it's 18 years old. And it just seems like I felt like, you know, it's been around for longer, but maybe not. 18 is not that old, honestly. Yeah, it really isn't. Yeah, it feels like they've been around like since I was born. I was born in 96. So like, yeah, it's been like something like, they were around since I was came into this world. So it's really interesting stuff what they've been doing. So in 2002, LinkedIn was founded as a network site for career-minded professionals. By 2020, it had grown to more than, get this, 675 million users worldwide. That's crazy. Wow. 675 million users. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so some of those accounts cannot all be like active people. Maybe it's, this is a little bit on the morbid side, but you know, maybe it's people that started the accounts and, you know, they left it or they started the accounts and then they you know, they passed away. So I think that that count may not be maybe all users, but again, they're saying it started in 2002. So here we are 19, 20 years later, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, holy cow, that is possible. 600, because think of all of the people around the world. It's just so hard to imagine that many people. Anyway, it remains the social media site of choice for job seekers, as well as HR managers searching for qualified candidates to join their company. So two other major forays into the social media ended up collapsing after a burst of initial success. And so in 2003, MySpace. I did not have a MySpace account. I know people that did, but I did not have one. It launched had, in 2003. I had, I had one. And I remember my friends in, in middle school pressured me to make an account. I don't know why. It was, it was popular at the time, but it was like a less fancy like Facebook compared to what Facebook is now. I would agree. So by 2006, it was the most visited website on the planet, on the planet, spurred by users' ability to share new music directly on their profile pages. So pretty cool, a way that people were trying to get, you know, music out there, a little blend of maybe YouTube, a little blend of Facebook, a little blend of whatever else might have been out there. But, you know, people really liked MySpace. By 2008, this is where the big boy came in. Facebook, but now when pushing it, going a little back and later on to 2011, MySpace was purchased by Justin Timberlake. I didn't know that, to be honest. That's, that's I did crazy. not know that. That was, that's crazy to think that. He bought it for about 35 million, but has since became a social media afterthought. Okay, I know some people who still have a MySpace page. I don't, I haven't been on my MySpace page for like a good 10 years, I think, or like five. Well, that's interesting. He spent 35, you know, in 2011, that was a crazy amount of money for somebody to spend. And he spent a lot of money on that. And, you know, it ends up being, I guess, to me, it would be something that was not a good business investment, but maybe he thinks that it was because, you know, he was able to pick up a lot of followers, just definitely showed that he was an entrepreneurial person at that point in time. Google's attempt was to elbow its way into the social media landscape so they launched Google Plus. That hung around for a little while. They finally, you know, retired Google Plus. I think it was two years ago. But it launched in 2012, and it was a rocky existence right from the beginning to the end of 2018. So not like 
couple of years ago, but pretty close. After the private information of nearly a half a million Google Plus users were compromised by a data security breach. That's significant because when I think about Google, I sit here and I think, wow, what are the chances of all of the employees that have access to information? You know, how do they protect all of that data that's out there? How do they protect people's lives, access to credit cards? And I would think that somebody would be trying to hack Google all of the time. So that really requires a high level team of people that are there to protect people's identities, people's um, financial resources, people, just everything about them. There's just so much information that's available to us. It's, and many times I sit here and I think maybe I should just go off the grid. But, you know, I know we're digressing here. We're also moving into what social media looks like. So we went from certainly journalism into broadcasting where, you know, the first newspapers moved into like what it was like with TV. And now we're moving into how people consume and communicate with one another through social channels. And the first one that we, other than MySpace, um, launches is Facebook in 2004 by Harvard students, Mark Zuckerberg. It had nearly 1.7 billion users, including 69% of the United States adults. And this is according to the Pew Research, a very reputable source of information. Reddit, which I don't understand at all, honestly, that is the one channel out of all of these that we're talking about. I do not have a Reddit account. It launched in 2005 by a couple of 20-somethings, Steve Huffman and Alexis Ohanan in Massachusetts as a news sharing platform. Its 300 million users have transformed Reddit into a combination news aggregation social commentary site. Its popularity is based on the ability to upvote and downvote user posts. To me, it sounds very similar to Horn. And you go ahead and tell us about Twitter. Well, Twitter was founded in 2006 by my, my Jack Darcy, Evan Williams, and Bistone, and others as a microblogging site. By 2020, 22% of US adults were Twitter users, according to the Pew Research. I don't use Twitter as much as like the other social media sites that you might, I use Facebook, but Twitter, not so much. I, but I do like look like here and there about Twitter here and there. But it is, I can see like what also helps that you can see what's trending, like what news is going on also. So it has like some perks of looking at it also. I used to be a big fan of Twitter. I did participate in that quite a bit. At first I was going, oh, I don't get it. But I really saw that there's so many businesses that use Twitter. And as you mentioned, it is a like a microblogging site. So you can put a lot of information out there, whether it's specific to an industry or a hobby or whatever it is that you might have going on. But, you know, that's a really quick way to put messages out there. Instagram, and what's interesting to me is all of the people that started these various social sites are at some of the Ivy League schools, not some. They pretty much all appear to be Ivy League schools. Harvard, you know, the one that's in Massachusetts, I'm betting that's probably like, I don't know, BU or some other school. Maybe it's MIT, who knows? But we'll have to look that one up. And then we jump over here and with Instagram, it's Stanford, which is California. It's still an Ivy League. So Stanford graduate Kevin Sistrom as a photo sharing site and was purchased by Facebook in 2012. 
That was the best move probably Facebook made. Instagram has more than 1 billion users worldwide. And it's obviously, as previously mentioned, it's all heavy in the visual side of it. So Twitter is 120 characters. Instagram, it's all images. They've got to be really high res ones. That's very, very interesting. I think that it does really well with anything that's cooking, dance, stuff like that. Pinterest, what are you going to tell me about Pinterest? So Pinterest was founded in 2010 by iPhone app developer Ben Silberman as a visual pin board. Pinterest became a publicly trade company in 2019 and has more than, wait for it, 335 million active monthly users. That's a lot of monthly. That is a lot. Isabella, do you have a Pinterest? Uh, I used to. I don't care for it too much. I think it's like one of those rabbit holes, kind of like on Facebook, that if I get into that too much, it'll just take you. It'll, you'll suck away an hour of your life in no time. What I think Pinterest is a, a really good platform to do is if you are... Uh, somebody in the arts and crafts field, you know, any of those industries, it's great for that, including, you know, if that's your business. Um, it's also nice if you're looking for a good hairstyle, you know, I can recommend it for that purpose. That's what I've used it for. I am just not that active on it. I try to pick and choose the social channels that I'm going to participate in. And now, you know, they've got Clubhouse up here. My goodness. We didn't even include that one on the list, but Clubhouse is on the list too. So we're going to move over to Snapchat. This is another one of those channels that I think is a waste of time, but it was founded in 2011 by, get this, another trio of Stanford students. They went and they saw this as a video sharing service that introduced concept of stories, which we actually use on other, other social channels now. And these serialized short videos, they would have filters, they would have formative digital effects, but you know, they're very short. Within 24 hours, they're gone. And so I don't see Snapchat as having much value to me as a business because I don't want to create an amazing video or a message and then it's gone. That serves no purpose in my opinion. But then we're going to go look at TikTok. So what do you know about TikTok? What can you share with us? So TikTok was founded in 2016 by a Chinese tech company called ByteDance. This short form video sharing site was merged with the US-based mobile app Musically, I've heard that app before. In 2018, it became popular with American teens and young adults. And as early as 2020, as more than 800 million users worldwide. I know from personal experience, I don't have a TikTok, but I know some coworkers who, when they're off the clock, obviously, they do like these TikTok videos where they're like doing like a dance move. It's like, you can't, I know this is like, this is like a visual medium, but not really, but like, it's like swaying your arms. And like, I kind of feel old when I see it. Cause I'm just like, what are they doing? They look so weird doing that. But I'm just like, I get the trend. Cause like, it's like, it's what's going on. It's like the now basically but it's interesting stuff i thought about downloading the app but i'm just like i feel like i'm gonna get that's like with pinterest i'm gonna go down a rabbit hole finding like weird like I'm, i just don't have time for that so the thing about tiktok is i think it's very popular as you mentioned with teens and young adults well this is the problem i have with tiktok is that it seems very um geared towards people that are scantily clad or they have rocking bodies and they're out there, you know, showing others, you know, how to exercise or to do something. So I think it might be specific for, you know, maybe the healthcare industry, or maybe it's going to be in fashion, or maybe it's in dance, but I don't know how it would benefit me 
as a business owner with what you know I do. So I tend to look at how this all of these social channels are being used in a business sense and go, I don't know, is this, you know, why? Why would I want to be there? You know, is that my demographic? If it is, great. You know, it would make sense. YouTube, though. I'm going to look at YouTube and LinkedIn. And I will mention something about a Clubhouse also. So YouTube was an American online video sharing platform that started in San Bruno, California. And it was created in 2005 by three, this is interesting, former PayPal employees. And it was bought by Google in November 2006 for $1.6 billion, $65 billion, and now operates as one of the company's subsidiaries. So Google, you know, made a big move and they they bought that out. I think that's a, a good idea. YouTube having so many ways that people can launch a career, whether they're in singing or they're teaching people how to do something or it could be anything across that whole gamut. It could be used for uh, for nonprofits, being able to have a call for help, donations, if you will. Anyway, I find a lot of value in YouTube. All of these social channels should be used wisely. LinkedIn, it's an American business and an employment-oriented online service that operates via websites and mobile apps that launched in 2003. And the platform is mainly used for professional networking and allows job seekers to post their resumes and CVs and employers to post jobs and HR directors to find people. I think that's significant. Clubhouse just launched, to my knowledge, this year, and it is just taken off like gangbusters. It was put out by Apple. So you have to have an Apple phone to be able to you know, get into the club so to speak. And when you join, a person can create a topic and you can invite people to come into this giant room and everybody's talking. So it's like being on a, any type of a video call, but no video. It's very noisy. I've been in a couple of them. And to me, it's just a bunch of people trying to talk over each other. So, you know, it's, it's noisy. I'm not sure how many users they have on the platform. So far, it looks like out of all of these channels that we've discussed that Instagram with 1 billion users so far, you know, they are the, the leader of the pack there. I would say that TikTok is going to be pretty close to that 1 billion mark if it hasn't hit already, because it was early 2020 that you had said that, 800 million users. I bet that there's probably coming in either right behind Instagram or, you know, maybe a little bit ahead. It's going to be interesting. So that is it for these social channels. Now let's go and look at some career opportunities. So we can talk about some of this. So there's a social media specialist, and that is obviously in, as a content creator. If you already spent most of your time on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or any of these other social channels that we mentioned, the good news is that it doesn't have to be a waste of time. If you're willing to embrace the strategic marketing side of social, you might be able to turn your passion into a career. And I have seen so many people do this. This is amazing. And I think it is a very smart career path to choose. In addition to a bachelor's degree and plenty of social media know-how, the job requires tact and discretion, meaning you know what to say and what not to say. The internet never forgets. So you don't wanna put something out there that's gonna cause problems later on down the road or the brand that you're representing. The median salary is about 61,000. So interesting information there. What about a content writer, Caesar? So a content writer, it could be an entry level job for anyone that's 
the journalism industry. They print content, online articles, website copies, and produce pages, video scripts, advertising copies, email newsletters, social media posts, and so much more. For this, they may conduct research, help develop a, a content creation plan, work with brand guidelines and check marketing metrics. They may also take part in the creative briefings and contact brainstorm sessions with editors, contact strategists, designers, and other professionals. The national average salary for this career is $49,114 in the United States. Yep. And that is really significant because, you know, you don't get to move right into a director role right away. You do have to climb the ranks, so to speak. You know, broadcasting is uh, really one of those very competitive fields. So this is the Intern Whisper Tip of the Week for our listeners and our, especially our employer listeners. This is from the Department of Labor's second criteria for unpaid internships. The internship provides training that would be similar to that which would be given in an educational environment, including the clinical and other hands-on training provided by educational institutions. So I just want our listeners to know that when I read this very technical definition, is coming straight from the Department of Labor's list of the seven criteria. So I just wanna make sure I'm following up with everyone. So employers, you do want to make sure that you are creating an environment that is built around learning. Remember how two and three-year-olds will always go around and ask you why, why, why? Well, you wanna do the same. Adults all want to know why. And that is so true, regardless of their age. Now, some may be more compliant, say, well, I know because you told me to do this, I will do it. But we always need to really explain the why behind anything that we're doing, because it creates really good uh, team culture. It improves communication. It makes it so that the contributions are going to be definitely more effective. So as a reminder to employers, usually most students, especially those that are just you know, relatively young in the 19, 20, early 20 years, they may not have a lot of work experience and you want to tell them why, because that'll help them to understand better how they're contributing to this particular task or responsibility that you want them to take on. So I want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and the video and audio production team. Caesar, thank you. Also, he's the associate producer. Steve Neese, Ashley Gonzalez, and Nala Ailey, video production editing team. And then we also have for our employers, please visit us at internpursuit.tech to learn how you can get matched with amazing intern talent and develop your own skills as well as your intern. Find our podcast on your favorite podcast channel and thank you for supporting the Intern Whisperer by subscribing to our show on Podbean and please leave us a comment and tell us what you like and what you would like us to play. That's gonna be so helpful to us. So good night to everybody. (laughs) 